Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. If you're a regular Politics Guys listener, you probably noticed that we've changed our introduction. We thought it would be nice to freshen things up with a low-key intro that conveys the cool, calm, and collected way we try to approach politics. Also, our old intro, which featured Il Papa Giraffe doing Love the Government, a song I really like, resulted in a number of comments from people who thought they weren't saying love, but, well, something we can't say without violating our non-explicit language designation on iTunes. The new music is a song called Low Pressure by Ash Turner. We hope you like it. Also, I wanted to remind you about the Politics Guys contest I announced last week, where one lucky winner, chosen at random, will get a $15 Amazon gift card. To enter, all you have to do is review the show on iTunes or retweet our new show tweets or share our new show posts on Facebook. To increase your chances, you can do all of that if you want. We'll announce the winner on our show next week. Good luck. Joined today by my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Strategist, Jay Carson. We start today on a different note with a story we won't be talking about. Now, as I'm sure you know, there were some developments or rather additional leaks in the ongoing Trump-Russia investigation. And I've been a strong supporter of investigations from the beginning, and I actually cheered the appointment of Robert Mueller as a special counsel. But these sort of snippets of out of context, questionably sourced leaks, I don't think they tell us anything. I feel like they're mostly sensationalist scandal bait that, you know, of course, the media covers them because, well, you know, sensationalist scandal bait is what sells. But also, at least to some extent, and and this it pains me to say this. The Trump camp is right, at least in part, in saying that the media or at least certain parts of it are, in fact, out to get him. Now, no, you know, now, now whether or not that's justified or not is another issue. And I think you can make a case that it is. But maybe that's a special episode of the media and Donald Trump we might want to consider doing. But but the point is, is I believe these sort of pseudo news stories get in the way of the sort of coverage of substantial substantive policy issues, the sort of things that, you know, we started the politics guys to cover. So Jay, well, what do you think about this? Yeah, no, I I think, you know, I I agree absolutely. And we've, we've said this a couple of times throughout the, doing the Trump scandal stories is, you know, we don't know, you know, what we don't know. Uh, And, and there's really nothing, you know, if, if there is a leak that says that uh, Kushner was talking to the Russians, um, well, it, you know, it beats me, uh, you know, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. There's not much you or I can add to that conversation at this point. Uh, once you get to a, a position where there is actual, there are actual findings from either a congressional committee, from an FBI, from uh, the uh, special counsel or, or someone like that, where there's a report and sort of established facts and you can talk about here's, here's where things go from there. Uh, yeah, then I think it's, it's worth talking about, but, but otherwise it, it does tend to suck up all the oxygen out of the room. Um, uh, just doing the, the week by week of here's something else that might've happened or might not have happened. Right. Yeah. And that's not to say that we're all of a sudden, you know, in the bag for Trump or pro Trump, or we don't think that there are some, you know, troubling aspects to these allegations, but we're just waiting for the real official investigation as opposed to reporting the leak of the week. All right. So our top story that we're actually going to talk about is President Trump's first international trip. Now, last week, Trey and I talked about the first leg of the trip, and that was the president's visit to Saudi Arabia. Of course, after leaving there, he went to Israel, Vatican City to meet with the Pope, uh, some of the G7 countries and a NATO meeting. And then he capped off the trip with a visit to American troops before heading home. So, Jay, what to you stands out about the trip and what, if anything, do you feel that the president accomplished? Uh, I think it was it was terrific. It was a terrific trip. No, I I think it was uh, it was good. Uh, And again, this has been sort of a surprise with with Trump is that uh, we we sort of expected him to be stronger on domestic and then just sort of floundering in foreign policy. Uh, But you can agree with or disagree with with what he was doing on these trips. but I think he was he was taking some some strong positions, uh, firming up our alliances in the Middle East uh, with with uh, countries like Saudi Arabia. And again, you can say uh, the Saudis are are not perhaps the the ideal ally. Uh, would we rather have someone else? Uh, yes, uh, but uh, we don't live in a perfect world. And um, 
you have to sort of take the, uh, uh, you know, they are, <laughs> we're, we're better off dealing with them than uh, the Iranians, uh, the Syrians and so forth. So I, I think he, he's doing the right thing. And, and um, uh, you know, the fact that he's, he's meeting with the Israelis and again, he's been, he's been sort of noncommittal as far as uh, he's been Israel's best friend, but also said he doesn't want to see new settlements. Um, so I, I think, I think that went, went well. And also there's the, the political point and people have raised this rightly. So, uh, that when you're in trouble domestically, you know, sometimes it's a good thing to uh, do something internationally, uh, just because it, it makes you look more presidential. Uh, and even for Donald Trump, um, right. again, although holding his hand on the goofy glowing globe thing with like the Legion of doom seemed, seemed pretty weird. But um, otherwise, no, I think that that went well. Um, you, you know, before before we move on to the other countries, I did want to uh, sort of discuss the, the human rights thing with you a little bit, because, you know, I think you can make a reasonable case that maybe President Obama lectured too much. Some would even say hectored too much about the human rights issue. But it seems to me that in so many he was, he was all over the Cubans on that. Well, but go well, ahead. well, it seems to me that in so many ways. Donald Trump is uh, not just a reaction, but an overreaction to some of what you could possibly argue were the excesses or errors or overcorrections of, of President, o President Obama. Because, you know, I think you certainly, it's certainly true that we can't uh, change Saudi Arabia's human rights you know, their policies. Right. But, but, but I think also we shouldn't just, there, there is something to be said for that whole idea of us as uh, an example to the world. And this was president Reagan, right. Put it the, the, the shining, the city on the hill kind of thing. And shining city on a hill, yep. you know, and, and I think we do have, I think a, a sort of a moral responsibility. And so sure. While we shouldn't hector other countries, I think it's entirely reasonable to say, Hey, we have a problem with how you treat women, with how you treat dissidents. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to try to work constructively with you, but know that this is a real serious problem for us and is going to be a problem with getting, you know, as close of a relationship as, as we might otherwise, otherwise have. And I don't think that's unreasonable. And that's why I feel like president Trump is maybe going too much the other way saying, Hey, yeah, whatever, you know, we're just going to work with you in this kind of transactional sort of what can we get out of you? And we don't really care about your well, human rights record. Well, it's, I mean, it's not, it's not like he attended a stoning or something like no, that. Fair, fair uh, enough. Fair enough. Uh, no, I mean, I, uh, I, I, no, I, I get that. Um, cause I'm, I, in fairness, I am all over, uh, Democrats when they go to places like China or, or Cuba and, and don't, uh, don't mention uh, human rights and treatment of dissidents and so forth. So I, I, that's, I think it's a fair criticism. Um, that said, you know, it's within the context of shoring up the alliance. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, maybe you could have done more, but I, I can I can live with with uh, with how he handled it. Um, and I guess moving on the next way, again, it's, it's the next thing that I was going to mention is, again, something he didn't say or didn't explicitly say uh, that he's been taking some heat for. Uh, and that is uh, in Europe at the uh, NATO memorial uh, honoring Article 5. He did not explicitly uh, state uh, that uh, the U.S. Uh, would would uh, honor Article 5 of, of the NATO um, uh, charter, you know, uh, which says that attack on one is an attack right. on all. You know, um, just real quickly before we get to that, one other thing I wanted to ask you about the Middle East uh, and what he did there, you know, did you get the sense, and a lot of people mention this, that he sort of is essentially changing our strategy to a certain extent to say we're kind of going all in with the Sunnis in the region? And, of course, Saudi Arabia and Egypt would be the two leading Sunni uh, countries in this region, particularly the Saudis being much more religious, religious uh, kind of against the Shias, which are led by uh, Iran, which is, you know, a pretty sizable country and the other. I mean, do you think— I mean, pretty clearly, again, that the theme that I talked about being a, a change in policy to Obama, President Obama, his administration seemed to sort of uh, decide that really we couldn't essentially stop Iran. And the thing to do was to talk with them, to kind of bring them in, in a way and, and, and work with them. And the Trump administration seems to be really kind of going not entirely 180 on that because they're not, they're not uh, disowning the Iran nuclear agreement, at least not yet, but it's a pretty clear change in emphasis. I'm wondering if you agree and if you think that's a good idea. Oh, oh no. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think to some extent you could argue his historically, 
uh, up up until the Obama administration, our policy had always been uh, favoring uh, the the Sunnis because again we had strong relationships with the Saudis, with the Egyptians, um, and you know through the through the eighties and nineties and, and looked at them as our, our strong allies to contain uh, Iran and then to some extent Iraq, which is which was its own sort of different different problem. Um, so I you know and I I think it's one of these situations where you you have to pick a side. Um, I, I don't think you can just straddle this and say, um, you know, Hey, we, we just want, uh, we just want peace. So we just want everybody to get along or, uh, try to, to balance one against the other. Um, especially when you're dealing with the, the Iranians. Um, I mean, you can, uh, one thing you can say for the, the Saudis, um, is, is they're not, expansionist in the sense that uh, the Iranians are. Same thing with the, the Egyptians. Um, again, they may uh, not treat their own people well. Uh, they may have other do other things we don't like, but they're not uh, uh, threatening other countries in the region uh, with, with attack. Now, okay, I suppose you could say, well, the Saudis are intervening in Yemen, but um, that's that's also a little different because it's, it's sort of a threat that hits home, and I, I think you could argue that's sort of self-defense. Um, but uh, no, I, I think sooner or later, your better policy is is picking picking a side and saying this is this is who we're with, uh, rather than trying to just do a, a little little of each. Yeah, well, well, you know, I mean, I, I see what you're saying, but I, I also I don't know that I entirely agree with the idea that you have to just black and white sort of pick a side. I mean, I, you know, I'm going to sound here probably like Charlie Brown uh, getting the football pulled away, you know, by Lucy and so forth. But, but, you know, we see signs in Iran that moderates are, if not ascendant, at least making, making some gains, you know, with, for, for instance, the recent election and so forth. And well, well, that, again, but, but that's as the, the, uh, there was there was some concern that uh, uh, rough rough um, I'm going to say it wrong uh, the, the recently elected Iranian premier um, it was too moderate I mean th- this is a guy who's like too soft on Israel uh, which you know and he's he's threatening to wipe them off the map with a nuclear bomb so uh, you know if that's moderate uh, you know I, well you know it, it's a you're right of course and it's a matter of degree though he's a lot more moderate than the guy that the most that the conservative clerics were backing. So, you know, you know, baby steps kind of thing. But, and so I, I guess I see your point, but I also think that we don't, if we go too hard in one direction, we risk kind of just basically not taking advantage of what might be some small openings. So, um, but anyway, you know, moving on, you mentioned the the NATO visit and the, the whole Article 5 thing, which is that mutual defense clause, which was only invoked once, in fact, after 9-11. And there was a lot made of the fact that President Trump didn't just come out and say, yes, we, you know, we, we still, we still stick by this. Although a number of people, including Secretary of State Tillerson said that, you know, and we do of course stand by this. So what did you make of that then? I, I think that was a lot of, you know, on the one hand, look, it'd be better if he did say that. Uh, but on the other hand, it's, it's Trump really can't win for losing in, in some cases. And I think the media was going to find something to, to criticize. Uh, I mean, he, he was standing there at a, a, uh, Article Five monument, you know, sort of, sort of commemorating uh, when the other nations came to uh, to America's aid after 9/11. Uh, you know, I don't think there was there was any implication uh, that that we would somehow not honor our commitments, uh, other than look, he he stepped up uh, the language about other other countries needing to to pay their fair share. But I, I don't think you can necessarily say that you know he was saying pay up or we don't uh, we don't defend you anymore. Um, and, and to sort of criticize him on, on something that he didn't explicitly say he's going to honor the treaty that has been in effect for, you know, what, 60 some years, um, uh, you know, at the memorial service for the, you know, specific article. I I think that's, I think that's going overboard, uh, uh, picking on the guy. And like you said, it's, uh, through other, other, uh, places in the administration we've made clear and he's made clear in other statements, uh, that he would uh, honor that uh, the um, uh, Article Five. So I think it was a whole lot of nothing, but it sort of shows that you know the, I think the the media and the left were really looking to 
to find something to, to take issue with. Well, you know, and I, I see your point, but I also think that it works both ways and that, you know, uh, there were uh, administration officials who said this was a this was a choice that was made not to explicitly state that. And to me, that sounds a, lot, a little bit like like President Trump basically giving a, you know, a little bit of a middle finger, uh, just being being difficult because he wants to be difficult and knowing it's going to cause a little bit of a kerfuffle, you know, that sort of thing, because it, it's pretty clear that they knew that would happen and they decided to do that. Uh, but, but yeah, I think when push comes to shove, of course, we're going to honor our article five uh, commitment. Now the thing about the 2% uh, or, or let's put it this way. If, if we didn't, I mean, then what would the, the Europeans come and say, well, come on, come on. You said at the monument at that, that trip, you were, you were going to do this. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's it's good to reassure and uh, send the strong message to the Russians, uh, but uh, you know, I I don't think it, it it it's not it's not legally binding or or to the extent any international agreement is legally binding. Right. I mean, now on that on the other issue, that two percent funding goal, that's actually an issue where I agree with the president. I think it's entirely reasonable to say that well, the the NATO countries agreed to this goal as they did a few years back. Then we they should you know. They should be willing to, you know, honor that agreement. I don't think that's unreasonable or unfair. You know, there's some people are saying, well, why is he pushing back on this when there are or pushing on this when there are so many other bigger issues? Well, if this isn't such a big deal, then then why don't these other countries go ahead and do that? I, I think that that would be uh, an easy, simple thing that they could do to show that, you know, okay, fair is fair, and we're going to honor our commitment, and we expect you, United States, to honor your commitment. And so I'm actually with the president on this one. How about that? Yeah, you know, it's weird. It, it felt weird to say that. I mentioned that on the Facebook uh, uh, this week, and it, it, but, but there you go. Sometimes, he's, sometimes I think he's right, and in this case, I, uh, I think he's right. So there yeah, you go. Yeah, and so, some conservatives, for example, I know Charles Krauthammer has been uh, sort of exercised about how the two percent really doesn't make a difference just because of the the vast differences in the uh, you know GNPs that we're talking about. Um, that the contribution, I mean, our our contribution still dwarfs uh, everyone else's, with the exception of perhaps England and Germany. Um, but uh, no, I think it's important that we again we stick to the deals and when we we. You know, again, that's sort of sort of part of a, a, a treaty too. If you're going to say, uh, uh, "Hey, we're we're going to uh, stand by what we said, and we expect you to stand by what what you said you do," so I, I agree, it's not it's not a huge deal, but I think it's I think it's good to see a little pushback. Yeah, absolutely. And so, of course, after that, then here, then there was the G7 meeting, where I think the biggest the biggest thing that came out of that was the fact that uh, six of the G7 countries uh, strongly reaffirmed their commitment to the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, one didn't. That, of course, would be the United States. But, you know, but I think the news here is that uh, the United States didn't uncommit to it. And in fact, there's some indication from senior officials that the president's view on this is, as they love to say, evolving and that, uh, you know, we, we might not entirely pull out of this. And, and to me, obviously, as somebody who is a big fan of the Accord, I think that's a good thing. And, and I feel like it's a, you know, I try to look for positive signs, signs of growth with, uh, with President Trump, signs that he's learning things. And I'd like to think that this is a sign where he's listened to some people who know a lot more about this and have a lot more experience than he does and is saying, well, Okay, maybe some of the crazy stuff I said in the campaign trail, I'm willing to put that aside and reconsider it and, as the word has it, uh, evolve. And so we'll see. But I, I, at least I thought that was somewhat positive. I suppose. I suppose. I mean, you know, you know my feelings on the, on the Paris. I mean, it, it's very much sort of a, a uh, uh, symbolic more than uh, any actual uh, make actual effect on, on, um, uh, on the environment. Uh, and I... I I'd be hesitant to to bind our hands, which it doesn't do. I mean, again, by saying nothing or even even affirming it, as as President Obama had, uh, there's there's no binding force uh, on uh, on the United States because it hasn't been ratified. So, I, you know, I, I, that's fine. If he makes if he makes you feel better by by uh, doing that, then uh, then I feel better too. Well, he made me feel slightly better. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, before we move on, we'd like to thank our new supporters this week. Uh, first is Sin, a new 
Patreon monthly sustaining supporter. And uh, thank you, Sin. We really appreciate that. It, it matters a lot to us. Also, thank Tim. You. Yeah, there's also Tim, who is another new Patreon supporter. It's a big week for our Patreon monthly supporters. And so thank both of you. We, we really do appreciate it. Um, and finally, we have Anne from Monroe, Wisconsin, who contributed through PayPal. Uh, she sent a great email shortly after she contributed, in which she writes, you made me think and you've helped me to listen. In return, I sent you a donation. And although it's difficult for me to share on Facebook, I do email, email the link to your website to friends and family. Thank you for being my favorite and I believe the best political podcast out there. Oh, wow. Thank you, Ann. Yeah. That means a lot. And if you'd like to help keep the show going, you can do what Sin, Tim, and Ann did this week. Go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal donation links you'll see there. And every donation helps, and we greatly appreciate it, no matter what the amount is. And those recurring monthly donations, which you can set up through Patreon, they are particularly helpful because they give us a better uh, better sense of what to expect financially as we move forward with the show. And of course, we would also really appreciate it if you could check out our sponsors using the promo code and spread the word by sharing episodes, new show tweets and posts and leaving reviews and ratings of the shows on your podcast app. Okay, moving on. Well, Donald Trump submitted his first budget, his first real budget blueprint this last week. And, you know, as with almost every presidential budget, it was deemed dead on arrival in the House of Representatives. And with this budget, you know, there was bipartisan rejection of many of the draconian cuts in discretionary spending that were outlined, along with a fair amount of derision, also somewhat bipartisan, for revenue projections that were generally seen as uh, fantastical, I suppose you could say. Um, Jay, what did you think about President Trump's first full-scale budget proposal? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm okay with it. Again, with the understanding that this is the way that uh, uh, Donald Trump op operates, this is the way that, that uh, congressional budgeting operates, is it's a negotiation. So he's going to start from a position which uh, he realizes is not going to be the position that he ends up with, um, but it makes a statement. Uh, we, we had talked about this uh, a couple months back when we had sort of the preliminary uh, outline of, of this budget. Uh, and there's, there was a really good piece in the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, editorial uh, talking about uh, Bob Kerry, Democrat Bob Kerry, uh, who's uh, since left uh, Congress. But, you know, the, the idea that sooner or later, if we don't tackle entitlement reforms, there's just not going to be enough left for all the other things that that liberals want to do. Even if you wanted to do all these these uh, these wonderful liberal things, uh, entitlements and the debt uh, are, are eating up an increasing amount of of our budget and increasingly cutting into what the discretionary funding is. Uh, and and you and I have talked a bunch of times too. The discretionary funding is the the very smaller piece of the pie. Uh, compared to the rest of, of the budget. So, you know, to me, I, I think it's it's good that we're we're sending that message that, look, either we're going to have to get serious with entitlements, which I this budget, eh, I mean, it, it, it does a little bit. It uh, doesn't really offer reform. Uh, but but if, if we don't, uh, you know, we're going to have to drastically change what we what we think of as what the government can do and or drastically think about uh, rethink about how we can pay for it. You know, I, I agree with you in a lot of respects there, but I, probably the, my first reaction on seeing President Trump's budget was, I miss Bob Dole, uh, which maybe that needs a little explanation. It probably does. But Bob Dole was sort of- well, I miss Bob Dole too. Well, there you go. I mean, back when I was a Republican, you remember those days, Jay, um, Bob Dole was sort of uh, he was he was the kind of Republican that I could get behind. Jack Kemp was another guy like that. The old fashioned sort of green eye shade, fiscally responsible Republicans, the sort of Republican who would look at a Donald Trump budget that uh, assumed an average of three percent growth over 10 years and would just roll their eyes, especially when the CBO estimates one point nine percent. The Federal Reserve estimates one point six percent. You know, and and sure, right. uh, no, no, I, no, I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't hit on the uh, the growth projection thing, but you're absolutely right there. I think it's, uh, I think that seems to be a, a pretty high target. Uh, I, I, I would say it's not impossible to reach three uh, percent growth. We certainly did it throughout the '80s and '90s. I'm glad you uh, mentioned but that. But to just assume it consistently yeah. for ten years, I think, is is uh, 
unwise. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that because, you know, exactly that's what some people are pointing to. They say, look at the 1990s, you got, you know, many years of 4 to 5% growth even. But I'd point out that that was a very different time. Number one, labor force productivity was a lot higher. And we have now this massive retirement of baby boomers. You combine that with a, a really extended period of slow productivity growth that, that has most economists just completely puzzled. But with, you know, those things combined, I mean, seriously, they call, you know, the paradox, the productivity paradox. And they say, well, why is productivity so slow? I don't know, is pretty much the economic consensus there. And so, you know, this to me is kind of a sign, uh, you know, and Nick Mulvaney, the budget director said, well, anyone who says, you know, that we can't get this kind of growth is down on America and isn't being enough of an optimist. They go, oh, that's a great way to spin it. But no, Republicans didn't used to do this. It used to be Democrats were the big tax and spenders. And okay, Democrats still are the tax and spenders. But ever since Ronald Reagan, really, Republicans have been the tax cut and spenders, which I would say is even worse. You know, no party is really concerned about fiscal discipline here when at least there used to be some small part of the Republican Party, kind of exemplified by Bob Dole, I would say, that did care about this stuff. But now everyone just seems like, eh, what a, you know, whatever, we'll figure well, it out. I, I would say there, there's still that part. And and again, you you might take issue because it seems it would seem sort of odd to compare them with Bob Dole, uh, who they would be, you know, sort of consider them antithetical to what they believe in. But I mean, the Tea Party, you know, Freedom Caucus folks, I mean, that's sort of what swept them into office was the let's let's cut taxes, let's lower spending. Uh, so I think that that's still out there, um, although it is less, you know, and I hate to use this word, uh, nuanced than than what you saw with uh, with a, a Senator Dole or someone who was a, uh, again, in, in essence, also a deal maker. He knew what he had to do to get, get something passed and, and you knew you weren't going to get everything you wanted and, uh, had sort of a better sense of, of how to manage these things responsibly and not just say, Oh, we're just, we're wiping this out. Yeah. Um, no, I think uh, that, I think that's a great point. I, I hadn't thought explicitly of the Tea Party comparison, but but you're right. And I think you're also very right on the main difference between the two is Bob Dole was no radical. Um, Bob Dole, I think, believed in incrementalism and he largely accepted that the sort of welfare state that had, you know, that had come up in the, from the thirties on was pretty much a, a basic feature now here to stay of, sure. uh, of our government where the Tea Party. Well, we were at least regardless, we weren't going to get rid of it in one session of Congress. Exactly. So, yeah. So, so I think that's a, you know, a pretty important difference, but, but again, my, I guess my main point, and I, I do miss Bob Dole. If there were more people like Bob Dole in Congress, Congress, I think we would have, we would be in a lot better position. That's for sure. You you recall you recall who Bob Dole uh, endorsed in the uh, in the primary. Bob Dole was you know getting older and so forth. All right. And so, but anyway, um, <laughs> moving on. This week, the Supreme. I, I met Bob Dole once. Did you? Just, just, throw, just throwing that out there. I didn't Brushes know that. with greatness. Wow, just as Trump cool. nodded to me one time, I. Well, cans with Bob Dole. Well, that's really cool, actually. Well, okay. Uh, so let's move on and talk about the, the Supreme Court. This week, the court ruled that two congressional districts in North Carolina were drawn in violation of the Constitution due to lawmakers impermissibly relying on race as the key criteria. Now, in the five to three opinion, with Justice Gorsuch not participating, Justice Kagan, who wrote for the majority, rejected North Carolina's argument that using race as a proxy for party affiliation was constitutionally permissible. Now, in previous rulings, the court had and still does allow gerrymandering based on party. Uh, so but the one thing I thought was really interesting about this ruling, Jay, was that Justice Thomas was part of the majority here, which is not something yeah. you would usually expect to, to see. And so I was wondering to get your thoughts in the, on the ruling in general and then also on Justice Thomas being in the majority on this case, which is very weird. Yeah, I, I you know, I think this was was kind of fascinating. And if you're a Republican, uh, I think you look at this and it, it's sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation. Uh, and and we've talked uh, numerous times about how one of the we think one of the, the biggest problems uh, with with our country with with the the rise in in um, uh, sort of extremism and extremism isn't the right word uh, uh, because I uh, that that calls to calls to mind uh, you know bombing things and so forth but um, 
I, I guess you know more partisanship is uh, ultra partisanship polarization. Yeah, uh, and part of yeah part of the problem is the way we we have drawn our our congressional districts, um, and part of that is is a relation because ha- having to steer between uh, the sort of the Scylla and Charybdis here of of the Voting Rights Act and and constitutional uh, uh, provisions. Um, on the one hand, the Voting Rights Act has is instructed and sort of requires that you can't create districts that that would prevent minorities from being elected. You you would have these what are called majority minority districts, uh, which essentially would would guarantee or at least give a a much greater uh, possibility of electing a minority to that seat. Um, but at the same time, you know, courts are saying, well. But you can't uh, draw districts so that you gain an upper hand in others. Uh, for example, essentially gerrymander uh, all all of a minority group into one district so that there's only one seat as opposed to making them competitive in, in two or three. Uh, and and to me, this is I mean, that's that's, you know, Kagan came down on the side of, uh, listen, race was the key factor here. And that's what was impermissible. Uh, but but it sort of reads as if, look, if. If we can do this and it benefits uh, Democrats on the one hand, then it's okay. If it, if it, uh, you know, that in that case, you know, race could be a, uh, used as a permissible factor. Um, that said, I mean, if you look at the map, this district is just absolutely goofy looking. I mean, it's it's really hard to justify from any geographic sort of standpoint, uh, at least as as best I can tell. Yeah, and um, you know, you're right. I I wanted to point that out. Is you know, it's. It, Gerrymandering is is the kind of thing where it can be really difficult to define what's permissible and what's not. But there are some instances where just, you know, like with pornography or other things, you know it when you see it and you just look at some of these districts and say, oh, come on. Now, obviously, oh, come on can't be a constitutional standard, but you know what I'm saying here. It's pretty clear sometimes what's what's going on here, which is why I think in a number of jurisdictions, a number of states, they've tried to move toward a uh, a nonpartisan or some kind of a bipartisan districting commission as opposed to letting the state legislature handle it. And, you know, one thing I, I don't I don't I disagree with Justice Thomas a lot obviously. But one thing I admire about him is the guy sticks to his guns. He's consistent. And back in the 90s, he was against gerrymandering when it benefited Republicans. He's against it when it benefits Democrats. And so he's been very consistent on this. He hasn't been very political on this. And I, you know, I I, I salute him for that. Well, me too. And and I, I wanted to point out his, his concurrence, I think is fascinating because uh, it shows that um, he's he's playing the the long game, as they say. Uh, he concurs largely on the basis that look, if we're talking about race, uh, this ought to be subject to strict scrutiny, um, as opposed to in some cases you could have an intermediate scrutiny uh, uh, with with things if it's sort of meant to to benefit uh, a minority group. And he's he's sort of sticking to the guns that look. Uh, it kind of as as uh, Justice Roberts said, the best way to stop uh, discriminating by race is to stop discriminating by race. Um, so I I think that's that's good that he's he's again like you said he's being consistent and he's he's playing the long game. Uh, the dissent in this was was interesting. There were there were two reasons for dissent. One uh, I I think is is just based on the prior case law. This district had essentially been upheld uh, earlier by the Supreme Court. Uh, with no problem. And, and so I think there was this some sense of, well, we're not just going to keep doing this every every time and every time there's there's population changes. And and also, look, the the new uh, districting that was was drawn in that was now found to be unconstitutional was the result of challenges to the the prior uh, district. So, I mean, that's what I mean, it's sort of you, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, uh, but you know, Alito also pointed out that, you know, what makes this difficult is the high uh, percentage of blacks who identify as Democrat. Uh, and and it's 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 really difficult then to draw these districts when you've you have one uh, factor that is permissible, that is, is party affiliation with one that is is not permissible or at least can't be used as the key uh, uh, factor, which is race. Um, so, I, you know, I, you know, I would throw out there, and this is something I wanted to, to get your thoughts on. I mean, are are we to the point now where where this provision, this minority ma- majority district uh, 
requirement, I mean, has outlived its usefulness or, you know, or become a barrier. Yeah, you, you know, I think that this was the, the, a great example of unintended consequences when this was first kind of, uh, first became a big thing in the 1990s. And, and you're, there, there were a number of these majority minority districts that were created. And all of a sudden, Democrats said, oh, wait a second. We're actually losing seats in Congress and Republicans all of a sudden are saying, yeah, you know, we kind of like this provision of the Voting Rights Act because it works out because we get more seats because of, as you pointed out, that whole idea of there being such a strong relationship between uh, minority voters and the Democratic Party. And so I think it it hasn't worked as Democrats had hoped it would work, certainly. Uh, but, you know, in terms of outliving usefulness, I think that it's an interesting point because, you know, all of this, uh, this, this case, uh, cases that are coming up in Virginia and Texas, all of this stems from the uh, five to four decision a few years back in Shelby County versus Holder, right, in which the court basically did away with those so-called pre-clearance requirements of the Voting Rights Act, which, which, uh, right. for certain, for certain states, right. right. Which justice, yeah. uh, justice Roberts, I believe who wrote the majority opinion said, you know, these are no longer necessary. These, uh, the, this sort of state level discrimination isn't going to happen. And then what happened? A bunch of these states rushed into it, in my view, discriminate, not really, not really discriminate based on race. I would argue, but I would argue discriminate, well, based on party to try to gerrymander, which, which the court has said is okay. So, yeah. Oh, and I absolutely believe it's this is partisan. I don't. I don't think it's it's racial. I, I think the idea that 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 I guess that's sort of my point is, is look, are, is the the racial piece of this just seems to be sort of coincident to the the partisan piece. You know, I I think. I, I have a certain amount of sympathy for that. And of course, that's kind of an argument against my own particular interest, which is getting more Democrats in the Congress. But I, I think there's something to be said for that. If if the court uh, has held and it has held that partisan gerrymandering is pretty much OK. And if that's really what's behind this and race just happens to be connected to that in a way, you know, I mean, uh, correlated with that. Well, then, yeah, I kind of. I kind of say that's probably okay. Now, there are going to be some people who are saying I am underestimating the amount of institutional racism in the South and these legislatures. And, and okay, maybe I am because honestly, you know, I'm, I'm from Ohio and, and, and I'm not, I don't have any experience yeah, with fair, Alabama yeah, or enough. Mississippi both, or anything. So, here, so. so maybe that is the case. And maybe I don't know what I'm talking about because I don't have experience with those legislatures and those cultures. So I will just say that, Maybe you're right, but from where I sit, it seems to me much more based on trying to gain partisan advantage than trying to specifically uh, disadvantage uh, a minority. And so I, I'm kind of all over the place on this because my my political interests kind of push against some of what I see as you know the the Constitution here, and I'm trying to be I'm trying to be faithful to well, both. That's, that's good. That shows growth. That's like that's like Judge Gorsuch said. If you're going to be a good judge, you're going to decide cases in ways that you might not want to decide them. That's kind of how I'm feeling a little bit on this. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, so let's move on to what we're reading this week, where this is the part of the show, of course, where we step back from the crazy pace of the news cycle and talk about, you know, the kind of more in-depth, thoughtful things we're reading or listening to or watching. And, and, and this week, I'm going to recommend two things. The first is a podcast I've been listening to a lot lately, and it's the Daily Standard podcast. And this is put out by the Weekly Standard. Uh, it's it's it pretty much every day. It's relatively short. It's to the point, and it really presents what I think is a clear and reasonable conservative viewpoint on whatever happens to be going on in the last day. It's become my single favorite source for conservative opinion. I mean, aside from you, Jay, of course. Second favorite source. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, people are going to say, well, after everything I've said in the show today, what's happened to me? Am I turned into some kind but of. You've a, been listening to that. They, uh, yeah, you've listening but, to that podcast. But, you know, I mean, uh, 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 Bill Crystal's on the show a lot, and there's some other folks on it who I really think they do a great job. And I've been making a real conscious effort to expose myself to a lot of conservative viewpoints to balance out the, you know, the much more uh, common liberal viewpoints I get. And, and I think it's been a good thing for me. And, you know, some people might say, well, you're, yeah, you're moving far too far to the center. I don't know if that's true or not, but anyway, you're just, you're just having an off week. 
Maybe that's it. I don't know. But but anyway, I think it's a, it's a really uh, it's a really great podcast. One thing I will point out is we share a sponsor, Dollar Shave Club. And if you listen to their Dollar Shave Club uh, ads, just remember that you can get the same great Dollar Shave Club deal by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. And, you know, you, you really want to you really want to use our link because you get the same deal. And we're kind of the you know, we're not the super well-funded kind of media. Some of scrappy underdogs. Exactly. You want to support the scrappy underdog, but check them out. Also, I read a fascinating profile of Secretary of Defense James Mattis this week. You know, I think Mattis is one of the best appointments Donald Trump has made. Reading this didn't do anything to change that view. If anything, it kind of deepened my respect for the man. He really seems to be uh, just incredibly smart, thoughtful, and with just a, a super high degree of integrity. And I think I thought it was just a really fascinating profile. You know, it, it raised a question for me. Some have, some have raised the question of, well, why would such a great guy, such a well-respected guy work for a guy like Donald Trump? You know, people have raised the same thing about HR McMaster as national security advisor. And I think it's a, you know, it's, it's a reasonable point, right? And some people said McMaster is selling his reputation by working for Trump. It, it kind of reminds me of the same arguments that people made, well, a few years ago, more than a few years ago, about why would the, the stoic philosopher Seneca go work for Nero? You know, I'm not saying Trump is Nero exactly, but, you know, and I think, but I think the argument is, well, you, you think you have an opportunity to do some good uh, and try to, Bring a guy along who maybe doesn't know a lot and maybe make a change for the positive in an otherwise not so great situation. I'd like to think that's what Mattis saw. That's what he's trying to do. That's what McMaster saw. That's what he's trying to do. And so I don't see it so much as they're selling out. I see it as they're trying to make a mark, make a positive change under less than ideal circumstances. And I think there are a lot of Republicans of goodwill and high integrity who are trying to do the same thing in a Trump administration. So, so, so there you go. I I would, I would, yeah, I would agree with, uh, again, Madison McMaster and then that, uh, you know, what their jobs entail. It's, it's not so much partisan, uh, politics. It's, it's defense of the country. Uh, and I think you can be say, look, I, I, I can agree or disagree with Donald Trump, but, uh, getting this right is is bigger than uh, than any any domestic politics, and it's something we have to get right. So that's uh, yeah. yeah, I agree. I'm glad they're there. Yeah, absolutely. So Jay, do you have anything this week that you're reading, listening, watching to, watching to, watching? I I, I do, and and again, I I hate to keep going back to this because I, well, I guess I didn't mention it last week, but um, uh, Peggy Noonan had a piece in the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, uh, this Saturday, which if, if anybody does, doesn't get the Saturday Wall Street Journal, again, I know it's like it can be expensive, but it, it's it's so worth it. Uh, but it was a great sort of discussion um, of uh, on the book uh, by um, uh, historian David McCullough. Uh, and I'm, I'm a big one for especially in these when we do these weekly, what are you reading, you know, wrap up kind of things. Uh, looking at the big picture historically, and and McCullough has recently put out a book, uh, and I haven't read the book yet, but it's sort of a, a, a collection of his speeches that that he's made, sort of the on the importance of history, uh, why it matters, uh, why it makes you a better person, why it makes us better citizens, uh, and and I think it's it was just really fascinating because so often we we lose perspective, uh, and we we don't understand that when history happens, uh, it's not no one knows where it's going. Uh, you know, these things happen in real time. And you, if you go back and view history of here are a bunch of people who are human, who, who are, are sort of good, sort of bad, and they're all just kind of doing the best they can with the situation they've got. Uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's really fascinating. And McCullough brings that out and, uh, uh, Peggy Noonan, uh, you know, highlights, highlights what he said. So I, I would recommend that, um, uh, to anyone. And, and, uh, I think that's, I think that's about it. I, okay. I suppose it could go on, but, uh, that was, that was my sort of favorite article of the week. Sounds good. And of course, as always, we will have links to all these in the, uh, in the show notes on our site, politicsguys.com. If you want to check them out, which we hope you will. All right. Moving on to listener mail. First, we want to thank listener Sewer Geek. Yes, that's the name. I assume it's a, a, a pseudonym or whatever, who left the latest review of the show on iTunes, which reads, I think you guys offer a fair and balanced look at current politics across the whole spectrum of viewpoints. Being somewhat of a novice in understanding politics and history, I appreciate your objective discussions. I find them to be a relief from today's hyper-sensational news media. 
So thank you very much, right, Sewer Geek. You. Yeah. Um, next is Alex from Minneapolis, Minnesota, who has a question for you, Jay. Uh-oh. Yeah. Um, this is never good. No, you know, uh, Alex has, and this was a few weeks back. He, he asked, why do you seem to not want a special prosecutor? Wouldn't anyone valuing our American experiment want to see an independent commission tell us that there isn't a concern, even if the possibility is remote? I would, I just would like you both to recognize that the outrage that a good portion of the country feels about Comey's firing is not based out of a trivial political narrative. So Jay, uh, I'll let you start on this. Uh, I would say, and for the same reasons I, I raised earlier, um, we have institutions uh, that that protect against this sort of thing. I mean, the founders built this in when we have a uh, bicameral legislature and uh, we have a, a court system. Um, and there are investigations going on uh, in both the House and the Senate, uh, and they're going to get to the bottom of this. And this is, this is a, a situation where uh, it's a little unusual in that Republicans are not uh, simply apologists or trying to sweep uh, stuff under the, the rug for Trump. Uh, I mean, at least I, I haven't seen that. I mean, I think many of these uh, folks have been pretty vocal uh, in in their criticism of, of how he's handled these things. And I think the problem you get when you get a, a special counsel, special prosecutor, um, and we had talked about the, the, the difference, the varying degrees of these things uh, a couple weeks ago, is you have someone who is, yes, independent, but also accountable to no one. Uh, and that's the problem is you can have someone who will make their sort of fame or fortune uh, on this, uh, you know, case and has unlimited resources. And it's it's not necessarily healthy, I think, to just turn over uh, this much power to one completely unelected uh, person when you have elected branches that are capable of conducting the same sort of investigations. Now, the way it would usually work, again, uh, Congress can't uh, prosecute anyone. Uh, they can make recommendations, though, certainly if they uncover something. Uh, likewise, Congress can't uh, prosecute the president. The only thing they could do would be to impeach him. And for that same reason, it's sort of, you know, that's the the Constitution is written in such a way that the check on uh, a, a president who's acting badly is the House uh, to impeach him. And I think when we add these additional uh, processes and uh, you know, you can look. I mean, I, again, sometimes it's it's whose ox is getting gored. I mean, people made these same arguments about Ken Starr uh, back in the 90s. Yeah. and uh, I, it, I, Go ahead. Sorry. Go, go, no, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I say, you know, the one thing that's different, and it's a very important thing that's different from the 90s, is that we no longer have the, uh, the independent counsel. Uh, that statute ran out in 99. It wasn't renewed. Right. So and it's, so it's less troublesome now. Yeah. These yeah. people aren't accountable to no one. They don't have, you know, unlimited. And so that they can be fired. And, and actually, you know, I. I believe in certain instances like this instance where you have where you can reasonably question the uh, impartiality uh, that that I think this is this is the case where Rod Rosenstein made the right choice, made the right call. And and I think that Bob Bob Mueller is, you know, widely respected. And so I, I am for this and I certainly don't downplay the uh, the outrage that people feel or at least the concern that people feel about this. And so I think this is a good thing. And I, I look forward to the report, though. That's, of course, you know, this is a very involved investigation. In the past, these sort of investigations have taken sometimes not just months, but years. So this could be a, you know, a long-term sort of thing. So, uh, so there you go. All right. Um, well, and I'm, I'm against the decision in the first place, but if you're going to appoint someone, uh, I think Bob Mueller was an excellent choice to appoint. So. I think he's going to bring a lot of integrity. And again, that's someone who has, has bipartisan partisan respect. Uh, and I think will 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 help bring closure to this sooner or later. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Next is listener Nuno, who says, I write to you after listening to episode 100 and the obsession with the threat that isn't Trump is interesting, but not the real threat. Meanwhile, Manchester got bombed. Uh, Ariana Grande gig of all targets. Are you obsessed? Are you so obsessed with Trump that you are forgetting the real danger? Now, you know, I thought that was was an interesting question, and you know, in a way, I wanted to bring this up because that's why at the beginning of the show, I you know, we wanted to raise that issue, saying you know, to what extent do we 
cover the talk about the scandal stuff because it certainly sometimes it can seem like news but i think there's a danger to fall into covering what is the most sensationalistic and so nuno i i actually agree to a certain extent on that first part of the question is is yeah we can and and much of the mainstream media i think focuses too much on that kind of sexy sensationalistic stuff and doesn't cover the more substantive policy stuff so i agree on that now as to the second part of it, you know, the Manchester bombing and so forth. Well, I agree that that's hugely important, but that's a little bit outside of our scope because our focus, of course, is uh, American politics and policy. And so when terrorist actions happen that have a more direct effect in the United States, we absolutely do focus on that. But this is not something that's, you know, at all trivial or unimportant, but it's just kind of outside of what our kind of yeah, our our ambit is to cover. So, Jay, your thoughts? Well, yeah, I would I would say we don't we don't. I mean, the I think you're exactly right on the uh, the Trump stuff. I mean, part of it is, um, you know, we started this out as a uh, you know policy podcast, and then sort of Trump happened, uh, and we sort of realized at the, be- the beginning of this year, uh, it was sort of like drinking from the fire hose uh, with with new Trump stuff every day, all the time. And, and in fairness, look, he's the president, so to the extent we cover American politics. Uh, we got to cover, uh, cover Trump, but there was so much, and there was so often, it seems like so much about so little, uh, that, that again, we're, we've, we've tried to, to back off that because otherwise it, it does just consume you that, uh, because Trump is going to keep doing goofy stuff. Um, and again, I say that as a Republican, uh, every, every week, but, uh, no, I, we absolutely take, uh, uh, terrorism and, uh, Islamic extremism seriously. Uh, and we've had some some pretty good discussions on that, um, and and I think maybe we'll have more uh, as we talk about things like immigration and and what happens uh, on our you know counterterror policy stuff. But um, you know the other problem with covering things like uh, Manchester uh, is you know look we do a once weekly show and uh, it's it's difficult to you know in, in those kind of situations we we again we don't know we don't what we don't know and. Uh, obviously we, when we don't have information, we hate to just sort of, you know, speculate as to what happened and why it happened. And, uh, as things play out, then I think we, we can have a good discussion about, uh, what to do about, uh, uh terrorism and, uh, Islamic extremism. You know, and I think another point is we, we want, we don't really want to stray outside of our areas of experience and expertise because then we're just two guys who are talking essentially. Whereas when we deal with uh, American politics and policy, that's what our background is. That's what our training is, you know, that, and that's the stuff where we feel like we can offer something more than just two guys talking. So, so yeah, you know, one other thing I wanted to mention in terms of listener mail, we've been getting a lot of listener mail about various things related to healthcare. Uh, We're not ignoring you. What we've, what we're going to do is we want to hold off on that until the Senate comes up with uh, some sort of a bill, which is you know going to happen at some point. We we, we presume, and you know that might actually be worthy of a, of an entire special politics guys episode. It's certainly a possibility, but we just want to try to handle all that at once. And so, uh, I, if you're if you're interested in that, we're not, not dodging you. No, we're not dodging you. So <laughs> so there you go. All right. Well. That's it for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or random thought you want to share, you know where to reach us, mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. You know, we really appreciate uh, all of you great listeners who've generously supported the show. And if you'd like to be one of those supporters, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website, politicsguys.com. And if money's tight or you're already a financial supporter, we hope you'll consider hitting the share icon on your podcast app to pass the episode along to people and leaving ratings and reviews of the show on your app, sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps to spread the word. That helps to bring in new listeners. That leads to more donations and advertisers, all the stuff that helps us to keep the show going week after week after week. And speaking of that, going week after week after week, well, we will be back with a new interview this Wednesday and our weekly analysis of the news on Sunday. We hope you'll join us.